Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I'm going to play a little game tonight, and um, the list is on your sheet, but I'm going to list out a famous inventor, and you got to tell me what they invented. So the first one is Nikola Tesla. Does anybody know what Nikola Tesla? The AC current, modern electro- electricity, and so Tesla's also the electric car company from Elon Musk, so all right. Anybody know what Archimedes invented or what he came up with or discovered or created? What? Inclined plane? I guess that would be. He calculated the area under the arc of a parabola and gave a remarkably accurate approximation of pi. Is that what you're saying there? Okay. All right, this one's pretty easy. Thomas Edison. What did he, what did he do? What? The light bulb. Anybody else know what else he did? No, that's not, that, that's somebody else. The photograph, I mean phonograph, and motion picture camera. So Thomas Edison invented a lot of things. Okay, now, next, Alexander Graham Bell. What did he invent? Telephone and the metal detector. And does anybody know that he was the founding member of the National Geographic Society in 1888. Now this one may be a hard one. Jerry Hall Lemelson. He's a modern inventor. Cordless phone, fax machine, VCR, and camcorder. Okay, and Ben Franklin. Bifocals, lightning rod. He invented the catheter. And he also invented an odometer to go on carriages to measure the distance. So So these are some of the greatest minds that the world has ever produced that invented something wonderful, invented something um, fantastic, changed our lives, made a stamp on history. These names are equated with people that invented or created or came up with something that was life-changing. Now think about the complexity of DNA for a moment. It's amazing to think the intricacies of the human eye, the intricacies of us as humans to be able to write poetry, to create music, to develop language, to build wonderful structures, to do math, all those amazing things. And the reason I bring this up is because Have you ever seen a dog build a bridge? Have you ever seen a caterpillar write poetry? No, you haven't. These are things that are reserved only for human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. So last week, we started this trajectory. We're studying the same thing the kids are studying, same things the youth are studying. We're studying it on a more expanded horizon. We started in Genesis 1. 
And we looked at the pattern of creation. We looked at the days of creation. We looked at the whole issue of light coming first. And then from the opening pages of the Bible, we realized that God is sovereign. God is creator. God is self-sufficient. God does all things for his glory. And we ended last week on the sixth day with the animals. But we didn't get to the crowning of God's creation, humans. So, if you have your Bible tonight, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And I want to remind you of something that we saw last week. Remember the repetition on each day? What did God say? Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Okay, now I want you to notice a, a, a dramatic shift in the language here when we get to humans. You will see it jump off the page at you. It's no longer let there be. So let's, let's read together and see what it, the Bible says. So let's pick up in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So there has been a pattern with the days of creation. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And then all of a sudden, it's no longer let there be, but it's what? Let us make man in our image. So what I want us to do tonight from this passage of Scripture is to ask three questions of this passage. Three big questions. We'll spend the next hour and 15 minutes or so answering these questions. So let's ask the first question. And this is a question that's been baffled people throughout the ages, and there's a lot of debate over it. And if you go to a commentary, you'll find seven or eight different opinions. I'll give you what the traditional historical, what I think is the correct interpretation. But here's the first question. Whoops, let me back up. The first question. Who exactly is the us referring to in verse 26 when God says, let us make man in our image? Who's the us and who's the our? Okay. Now, some people think this refers to God talking to the council of angels. Some take it to mean God is speaking to the heavens and the earth. But that does not make any sense because... We're not created in the image of the heavens and the earth, and we're not created in the image of angels. So historically, 
And I think the classic, historic, conservative, evangelical view has been taken that this refers to the Trinity. The bedrock theological truth that there is one God, but three distinct persons. Okay, look at verse 26. God, okay, God singular said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. But then look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So you have an our, an us, in verse 26, and we have a he and his in verse 27. So let's talk about the Trinity. If you get the Trinity wrong, you get Christianity wrong. It is the most foundational truth of the Scriptures. Now, the word Trinity does not show up in the Bible. You can't go to a concordance and search and find the word Trinity. It is a word that's been, that's been coined in church history that defines what the Bible teaches. Now, I could give you a bunch of analogies which are, are, do not come even close to describing the Trinity. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three bedrock truths, okay? And if you want more information on this, I've written, I've written a book, Your Identity in the Trinity. I know a lot of you have it. Don't go to Amazon and buy it. I've got copies in my office. Um, I'll give it to you for 12 bucks. How's that? If you want a copy of the book, it goes into a little bit more detail about this. But, and, and I go into more detail, I think, in chapter 3 of, of, of my book. But here's, here's the three bedrock truths, okay? So here's truth number one. There is only one God. Monotheism, one God. We don't worship a bunch of different gods. When we go to South Asia, some of you in this room have gone, like in that section over there. Hindus worship millions of different go- of gods. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We worship one God. One in essence. You may want to write that word essence or being. That's kind of the traditional language, one in being. Okay? So that's truth number one. There is one God, one in essence, one in being. But second bedrock truth, I want you to think about this. So like if I, had a, if I had a stool up here, I don't think there is a stool up here, but if I had a stool up here and it had three legs, but one of those legs was missing, what would happen to the stool? It would fall over. So all three of these need to be there. If you take one of these out, you end up with a cult or a, a false teaching or something that's not orthodox. So number one, there's only one God. Number two, within this one God... There exists three distinct persons. Who are these three distinct persons? You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. So let me ask you some questions. Is the Father the same person as the Son? No. Is the Holy Spirit the same person as the Father? No. Is the Son the same person as the Holy Spirit? No. They are three distinct persons, but they all share the same essence as God. Now, a perfect example of this would be at Jesus' baptism. Who's the only person of the Trinity that has a body? Jesus. Jesus physically came in the flesh. He was baptized in the Jordan River. Who spoke from heaven? The Father said, This is my beloved Son. 
unless Jesus is a good ventriloquist and he threw his voice up there. No, God the Father is speaking to his Son, and then the Holy Spirit comes as a dove and lands upon him. So you see three distinct persons, okay? So one God, three distinct persons, but then here's the third truth. All three persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, meaning that the Father has always existed, the Son has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always existed. They, they did not come into being. They've always been. And they're equal as far as their Godhood. Jesus is fully God. The Father's fully God. The Holy Spirit's fully God. They all share the same essence of Godhood, yet within three distinct persons. Okay? So, just two passages of Scripture that, that kind of you see the Trinity there's a bunch in the Bible you could look at, but uh, the Great Commission, uh-oh, I lost my PowerPoint. Can somebody go find Tarina? I don't know where she went, or somebody needs to go. I don't know what happened back there, but you guys have a sheet, but I can't see what's going on, but I can see what's going on here. You guys are okay without it. So Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and I want you to notice the language, baptizing them in the name of, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus was not very good at grammar, was he? How many persons are there? Three persons, right? But name is in singular. Should not technical grammar be in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, if you were going to be an English teacher and grade for, for points here, but there's a theological reason why it's the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons that share the same essence of God, Godhood. And then, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What's up? What? I didn't do anything. That's fine. Do you guys really care? Do you like to have it on the screen, or do you? Does it matter? I ran out of handouts. Can you make more hand? Okay, there's more people here tonight than I expected. Can you guys share while she's? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we have our ministry assistants here tonight to help out. That's good. So you see all three persons of the Trinity in there. You see Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So when I read, let us make man in our own image, I take that to mean it's the three persons of the Trinity having what we would call an inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Okay, it's like the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, let us, all three persons who share the same Godhood, let us make man in our own image. It's, is this the Trinity's talking among themselves? Now, often when we think of creation, we often think of only God the Father being the one that created, because we saw that last week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But do you realize the Bible teaches that all three persons of the Trinity are present in creation? I keep hitting this as if it's going to do something. But, um, so let's keep going. The Bible describes all three persons involved in creation. So the Father. Now, obviously, in Genesis 1, we saw that last week. But notice what 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 does. It does the Father and the Son here. 
Yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So even in that passage, Paul says everything comes from God the Father and God the Son. He distinguishes them as two distinct persons, the Father and the Son. Okay, what about Jesus the Son being in part of creation? John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and here's the point, verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's talking about Jesus. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, that's also talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, look at verse 17 on your sheet there. In him all things hold together. You know what the Greek word is there for all things hold together? It's where we get our word sustained. It's actually the Greek word sustaneo. He sustains all things. In other words, we would fly off the planet because of you know, weird gravitational pull or whatever if Jesus did not sustain and hold all things together. And how is he holding all things together? By the power of his word. So God the Father created Jesus the Son created, and then we saw the Holy Spirit last week. We just go back to Genesis 1-2. We saw this last week. We'll start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, this is the first big question in this passage of Scripture. Why such a dramatic shift from the first six times, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, and all of a sudden, let us. You should just jump off of the page. Now, wait a minute. The, the pattern's broken. What does that tell you theologically? There's something uniquely distinct about the creation of humans that's different than everything else. Let us make man. Okay, that's the first question. What does the let us mean? And we have basically argued or affirmed what has been down through history that is speaking about the Trinity. Okay, let's ask the second big question tonight. What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? If you remember from last week, the animals were created after their own kind. They're created after their own kind. But humans are said to be created in the image of God. So if you look there, verse 26, God said, let us make man. Now, the, the Hebrew word for man there is where we get the word Adam, Adam. So Adam can be literally Adam, the first man, but it's also the word for man in Hebrew. Let us make Adam, man, literally the first man, Adam. Now, what in the world does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? Does it mean that we physically look like God? Can't mean that because God is spirit. God does not, the God the Father does not have flesh and blood. He's spirit. So is it talking about physical likeness or is it talking about something else? 
So there's a lot of different, man, you, there's a lot of debate as far as what does it mean to be created in the image of God. So let's, let's unpack and ask this question tonight. So the traditional view is that we have mental and spiritual qualities that we share with God that set us apart from animals, and what are those? We can create, we can think, we can form language, we can have a spiritual relationship with God in ways that are different from plants and animals. Okay? So being created in the image of God, just at its basic, just at the basic understanding is we have rationality, we have agency, we have a soul, we can commune with God, we can, we can create language. We're not, we are not little gods, like the way some televangelists teach. We are made in the likeness of God. So here's the first thing we need to understand. Man is a dependent creature, not independent and autonomous. Okay. Remember what I said last week? Our culture needs to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Because what do you hear today? And we're going to talk about this here in just a moment with the third question. We're getting there. What do you hear in our culture today? I'm just being me. You have no right to tell me how I can live. I can be whoever I want. I can choose my own boundaries. I can choose my own self-expression. I can be who I want to be. There are no rules. There are no boundaries. There is no order. I am in charge of my life, and don't tell me what to do. That's what autonomy means. Autonomy means self-rule. Independent means I'm not going to depend upon God. So from the very beginning, who's in charge, God or man? God. God created us in his image. And just think of that the power of God. Are you getting it worked out, Trainer? Uh, we're on Isaiah 40, 25 through 28. So to whom, this is God speaking, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now think about this for a moment. God not only created all the stars, but he knows them all by name. How many stars are there just in our galaxy? And it says not one is missing. Okay, who's in charge? <laughs> like you can go up in the night sky like, okay, there's one, there's two. And you can kind of make up some cool names for stars maybe as a kid, you know, like whatever. God knows every single star's name and not one is missing because God put them there and he keeps them there. He's the everlasting God. He's the one in charge. He's the one that sets the boundaries. He is the creator. We are the creation. And the second thing we need to understand is not only are we dependent and not autonomous, but being created in God's image means we exist to display His glory. What got Israel in trouble all throughout the Old Testament? 
What's the breaking of the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself what? A graven image, an idol. When you make an idol or you make an image, you worship that. We were created in God's image to reflect his glory to a watching world. So it would really do us well to remember two things. And this is regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. This is fundamental to every single person that's created, whether they know it or not. They are dependent, not independent, and they were created to display God's glory. Now, how many people do that? Now, hopefully as Christians, we understand that and we live our lives for the glory of God. All right. So, there is the whole issue of... um, Yeah, John Calvin said this, although the primary seat of the divine image was in the mind and heart or in the soul and its powers, yet there was no part of man, not even the body itself, in which some sparks did not glow. What John Calvin is saying there is before the fall, even everything about man, his mind, his body, his will, his emotion, was created in an upright state that reflected the glory of God before the fall. Now that's going to be impacted as we see next week in the fall. So, being created in the image of God means that we have rationality, we have souls, we can relate to God, we can commune to God, we're created for God's glory. But, there is a purpose for which we are created that this text specifically tells us. What eludes us is that there's not a clear definition of what it truly means to be created in the image of God, but we do find out what our function is. So, let's look here real quick. Verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. The Hebrew grammar helps us to understand here what Moses is saying. Let us make man so that they may have dominion. That's literally how it's worded in the Hebrew language. So, God has given us dominion over creation. Ruling over creation is not necessarily the essence of our divine being. It's rather a result of being made in the divine image. So, Adam, being made in God's image, was given authority over the earth to rule, and I want you to think about this language, Adam was a servant king. Adam was a servant king. He was to be God's royal representative on earth. He was to serve God and to represent God as a servant king. So there's some typology going on from the very beginning that we think about how God has ordained things from the very beginning. Now, where do we get this image from ruling over, being, having dominion? The psalmist in Psalm 8, goes back to creation and gives us a little bit more information. So what does Psalm 8, 4 through 8 say? What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion 
over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So David here is alluding back to Genesis chapter 1 and he's using this whole idea of having dominion over what God has created. So the word image, being created in God's image, being created in God's likeness, means that we as humans... This is what Adam did at the beginning and what we're supposed to do is we represent God in terms of his royal rule as sovereign creator. We represent God. So that would have made sense in the ancient Near East culture because kings were said to be in the image of God. So what Moses is doing here is he's making a very strong statement that Adam is God's representative on earth to rule over creation in such a way that he serves God and he displays God's glory. And one thing we need to understand, some people take it a little bit too far, and we'll talk about this next week about the fall. One thing we need to stress is that even after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was not destroyed. Okay, it was impacted. Think of it this way. If I were to have a mirror up here, like a hand mirror, and I would look at myself and be like, oh, wow, that's scary, Pastor Sean in the mirror. All right, so you have a clear mirror. When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see a clear image? Okay, what would happen if I took a rock and I smashed the mirror? Would, 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 you still, would I still be able to see myself somewhat in there? Yeah, but it would be fractured. So the image of God is not lost, it's more fractured. And we'll talk about that next week. So we don't lose the image of God, because if you go to, go to Genesis 9, 6 for just a moment. And we'll come back to it in just a moment, but go to Genesis 9, 6. And this is after the flood, and God reiterates something here. This, so this is after the fall, this is after the flood. So this is just a proof here that the image of God has not been destroyed in the fall. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this is basically a prohibition against murder. You don't murder. Why do you not murder? Because people are made in the image of God. Okay? So there's a pattern in how God establishes things from the very beginning. So, and you'll see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament, if you look for it. It's set up right here in Genesis, and you can look for it. There are three things about the storyline of the Bible that we can see from Genesis to Revelation regarding the kingdom of God. What are these three things? God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This is, this is the major storyline of the Bible. God has a people. He has them in a place. And they're under his rule and his blessing. So let's think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are God's people. What's the place they're in? The Garden of Eden. They're under His rule and His blessing. Now, what happened when they walk in disobedience? They get kicked out of His place, and they are no longer under His blessing, per se. Okay? Think about Abraham. Where does God call forth Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you have a people? Yeah, the Israelites. Where's the place? Well, eventually it's going to be the promised land. 
under God's rule and blessing. Okay. What happens at the opening pages of Exodus? Do you have God's people? Okay. Where are they? Are they in God's place? No, they're in bondage. Are they under God's rule and blessing? No, they're under Pharaoh. They've got to get out of Egypt into the promised land. And then remember, what happens at the end of the Old Testament? You, you finally have God's people in God's place, but what happens? They disobey and God kicks them out of the land, and so they go into exile. So this whole motif of God's people and God's place under God's rule, it's the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Here's a definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God ruling his people in his place under his rule and blessing. And it shows up all throughout the Old Testament. Now, it's different now that Christ has come because the rule is not necessarily a physical place like Israel or ancient Israel. Egypt or whatever, the place now is in our hearts, and then ultimately in the future, where's the place going to be? Heaven, okay? So when Jesus comes on the scene, what's the first thing that Jesus preaches when he comes on the scene in Mark? After Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus preaches. The king. So what's the kingdom of God? God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. So Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God. In other words, today God is still creating a people to live in his place under his rule and his blessing. Where is that place? It's been different places all throughout redemptive history. At first it was in the Garden of Eden. It's no longer in the Garden of Eden. It was in the Promised Land, no longer in the Promised Land. It's not really in any physical, God's kingdom is not, you, you can't locate it in any physical location. God is preparing for us a new heavens and a new earth for us to dwell forever with him as his people in his place under his rule and under his blessing. So from Genesis to Revelation, you see that theme of kingdom, the kingdom of God, God's people and God's place under God's rule. Now, what are the practical implications of being created in the image of God? I think I've got seven of them here. So what is it, what, what's the practical outworking of this? Okay, let's look at these. Number one, all human life is sacred. We call this the sanctity of life. Even unborn life is sacred. From conception to death and everywhere in between, human life is sacred. And that's why we said earlier, we, we looked at that earlier, that Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall he shed his, his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So being created in the image of God means that every single person is sacred. Life is sacred. The sacred sanctity of human life. Because God created them in His image. Okay, number two, because we have a spirit and because we're created to worship, all humans must give spiritual worship to God. We were created to worship God. That's ultimately why we were created. Animals don't have that ability to worship and praise God. Now, there's a whole debate, are dogs going to be in heaven? Well, you know the cartoon says all dogs are going to be in heaven, but I think they will be. But 
we as humans have a, we'll look at this next week, we have a human soul or spirit. And so we must give God spiritual worship. And, and Jesus tells the woman at the well of that. In John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we're spiritual beings. We are, are sacred beings created in the image of God. And then number three, all humans have dignity. Every single human has dignity. Regardless of their physical handicap, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social status, all humans have dignity. And James makes this argument, James 3, 7 through 10. Every kind of beast and bird, a reptile or sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is a sermon for another time, but the tongue. But he says this, with it, with our tongue, what do we do? We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things not not to be. We curse people who are made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth, we can bless people, we can curse people. Every single human being deserves dignity and honor. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. Every human being has dignity. And number four, this is not just a declaration of independence or constitution thing that comes from the bible all humans are equal all humans are equal now there's an interesting passage of scripture here from job uh, job 31 13 through 15 he says this if i have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes an inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? What's he saying there? Job's saying, listen, I can get all high and mighty over my servants and get mad at them and think that I'm better than them, but then I have to remember something. God made me, God made them, God created us both, and so therefore, I'm no better than they are because we're both created equal in the image of God. So all humans are equal, which would go against racism or any type of oppression or anything where you are elevating one group of people over another and denying them basic human rights because of whatever. Okay, all humans should receive good from us. Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone. We need to be doing good works. We need to treat others kindly. Hebrews 13.16 Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
And then finally, I said I had, um, oh no, I, this is not finally. This is number six. Next to finally. Number six, all humans are morally accountable to God. Whether they know it or not, they're morally accountable. When you get saved, God renews you. And the language that Paul uses is to be renewed in the image of God. Hebrews 4.24 Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what are, we, what are we to be as Christians? We are to be righteous and holy. Galatians 3.10 We've put, off, or put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we are being renewed to be in the image of God, and therefore we are morally accountable to God as his creation. We talked about that earlier. We're not autonomous. We're not independent. We are dependent. We are accountable. And then being created in the image of God, having a soul, having all these things, means that all humans have an eternal destiny. Let me just say it this way. Every single human will have eternal life. It's not a matter of whether you're going to have eternal life. The issue is where. Is eternal life going to be in heaven or is eternal life going to be in hell? But you're going to live for eternity. You were created in the image of God to live forever in eternity one way or the other. So Jesus says in John 5, 29, or 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And obviously you go to Revelation, you find out the lake of fire and the, and the great white throne judgment. So being created in the image of God is, is something that we should not take lightly. We have dignity. All human life is sacred. We are created for God's glory. We have eternal destinies. We have souls. We relate to God. We were created to steward God's earth. We were created to glorify God. We are created in the image of God. So those are the first two questions tonight. What does it mean, let us? That's the Trinity. Number two, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Now here's the third and most controversial. We may get shut off tonight on Facebook or YouTube. We don't, we'll know. We'll see. If their bots are out there tracking us, okay? Here's the third thing. Why is there a biological and sexual distinction between humans and creation? And how does that affect our worldview today? Okay, read very carefully with your own eyes, okay? This is, this is a radical statement. Verse 27 is very radical. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's pretty plain, isn't it? Male and female, he created them. Now, it's interesting that he calls them what? Male and female. Not just man and woman, but male and female. Different Hebrew word there to denote their sexuality and their anatomy. In today's world, there's much confusion over gender, sex, and identity issues. 
So let's just jump right off the cliff and let's address a big hot topic that's going on right now. Let's, let's address the transgender issue because there is transgender confusion galore in our culture all over the place. Bruce Jenner posed on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine back in 2015. Seems like that's like that kind of launched this whole thing. That was just like seven years ago. And the title of it was Call Me Caitlin. So he goes by Caitlin now. I think I've told you guys, there's a book written for four-year-old children called The Gender Fairy, which states only you can choose whether you're a boy or girl. No one can tell you. It's written for four-year-olds. Okay? So we are not only facing an uphill battle with secular culture, but it's creeping into the church. So here's why it's gotten very confusing. Okay, so I'm going to talk about some of these issues. We have former quote-unquote evangelicals who now have embraced same-sex marriage and the transgender issue full board. Okay, so I'm going to list names because you need to know these names. Matthew Vines is probably the leader of this. Um, he's the author of God and the Gay Christian. He basically takes the Bible and says, I am a Bible-believing Christian, but homosexual marriage and all this stuff is okay. And basically, he has a Christian nonprofit that works to advance the LGBTQ movement in churches. So he goes into churches to teach churches how to move towards LGBTQ acceptance. Okay? David Gushy. David Gushy was a former Southern Baptist professor at a seminary in the early 90s. He was one of the leading evangelical ethics professor. And then in 2015, he came out in favor of same-sex marriage. And now he identifies as a progressive Christian. You guys know about who Jen Hatmaker is, right? HGTV wrote all those Christian books for women. Uh, My Big Family Renovation. 2016, she came out in support of gay marriage. And basically, um, she's a full-blown progressive Christian now. The saddest one to me is Joshua Harris. Uh, Joshua Harris wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he was a big-time pastor in a lot of uh, conferences. He spoke at conferences for college students, and he was on the stage with big-time speakers like John Piper and, and um, David Platt and Matt Chandler and all these big-time pastors. And basically, a few years ago, he came out on Instagram and basically said, I've apostatized. I've fallen from the faith. I'm no longer a Christian. And here's what he wrote. He says, this was, in, this was in the summer of 2019. He said, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. And so now he's basically helping churches to embrace LGBTQ, former evangelicals. So you have former evangelicals who maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago solidly believe the Bible, and now they are arguing for what I would, you need to understand this term, this is called side A gay Christianity. It's called side A. Okay, what is side A gay Christianity? Side A is this. This view holds 
that monogamous homosexual relationships and marriages are not forbidden by Scripture and they are blessed by God. So side A, Christians will say the Bible may speak out against homosexuality, but they didn't know what they were talking about back then. It was more um, abuse. It was more exploitation. But if you're in a... If you're in a monogamous, healthy, homosexual relationship, it's actually healthy and blessed by God, and therefore it's okay. So that's side A, gay Christianity. These are people that use the Bible to support their view. Okay? Now, what makes it even more confusing is that we also have conservative evangelicals, i.e. the past two Southern Baptist Convention presidents, making confusing statements and stances on human sexuality and gender. I've talked to you about J.D. Greer. He's the past president two times ago, and then Ed Litton was the one after him. Both of them said the same thing. They said, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what the Bible shouts about, and the Bible appears to more whisper when it comes to sexual sins compared to its shouts about materialism and pride. This is the attitude that you're hearing right now among a lot of evangelical Christians. They're basically saying the Bible whispers about sexual stuff. It's not that clear. We need to focus more on pride and anger and jealousy. Those are the things the Bible shouts about. But the Bible, so hey, let, me have you, let me ask you a question. Just Let me just ask you a question. Does the Bible whisper about those things? Or is it pretty clear? I mean, not like it yells at you, like it's like right in your face. But when you use language like, why, why do you use language like the Bible whispers? Why do you want to say that? Because I'm afraid if I say what the Bible really says, I'm going to turn off people. I'm going to make people feel uncomfortable. I may be called a bigot. And so I can't deny what the Bible says because I'm an evangelical Bible-believing Christian and I can't do that or my church will fire me or whatever. I won't get book deals, and I, you know, I can't go that way. But I can maybe say this. It whispers about that. It kind of softens the blow. Okay? So, and then the Revoice Conference. Back in 2018, this is a big deal going on in the Presbyterian Church in America. Revoice is basically a big movement. It's called the Gay Christian Movement, where basically they're arguing for what's called Side B, gay Christianity, okay? So there's side side A and side B, okay? So these are just terms you need to know because these these are being used in culture. These are being used in the church. So what is side A? Side A is homosexual relationships, the whole issue. If it's monogamous, it's okay in the Bible. It's not forbidden. Okay, side B, gay Christianity, says this. It's okay to have same-sex attraction if you don't act out on it and you remain celibate. You can call yourself, quote, a gay Christian, and this can be your identity even if you don't act out on it. So side B says, as long as you remain celibate and don't act out on it, you can still have these same-sex attractions. You can still identify. You can, so like there's a pastor, uh, this Revoice Conference, he's married has kids, but he still refers to himself as gay because he feels like that's his identity. So he calls himself a gay Christian even though he doesn't practice it and he's married to a heteros- he's in a heterosexual marriage. But here's the issue. 
This is where the, the rubber meets the road. The Bible, the biblical teaching is that any unbiblical sexual desire is sinful, even if you don't act down on it. Okay. Let's take homosexuality out of the equation. What would you guys do if I came up one Sunday morning and said, I'm a lustful pastor. I'm a lustful Christian. I don't act out on it, but I really lust after every woman in this church almost every Sunday, and it's going through my heart, and it's going through my mind. That's just kind of how I've identified myself. I'm a lustful Christian, even though I don't act out on it. What would you think about me? You got some problems, Pastor Sean. You got some problems, okay? Okay, so we don't have a problem with that when it comes to heterosexual sin. If I, as a heterosexual man, say, I struggle with lust, and therefore I'm going to identify myself as a lustful Christian, all of you would say, that's sin. Whether you act out on it or not, it's sin. So let's take that to the, heter- to the homosexual side. Why would it change based upon the, the difference? You understand what I'm saying? I can identify as a gay Christian. I'm still going to have same-sex attraction. I'm still going to have feelings towards other people that are the same sex, but I'm just not going to act out on it. That's okay, but for a heterosexual to say, you know, I'm, I'm a lustful Christian, that's not okay. And so we need to be very um, careful in how we tread these waters, okay? So we need to be loving. Okay? I'm not... I think we need to be loving, and this goes back to every single person has dignity. We need to be understanding. We need to try to minister to those who struggle. As a church, we don't want to cast them aside, but we want to give them the hope of the gospel. We want to show them the importance of repentance and that God has designed them for a better way to glorify Him. You guys can read that passage in Romans. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to skip over that for now because I think we've kind of beaten a dead horse here. So there's a lot of confusion in our world today about what is a man and what is a woman and what is marriage. Next week we're going to talk about marriage. But before you get to marriage you've got to understand <laughs> what a man is and what a woman is so that you can understand what a biblical marriage is. Now, my biggest concern is that even today, there's legislation being put forth secretly in a budget spending bill in the Senate to basically codify the Equality Act that was passed by the House of Representatives but it hasn't passed the Senate. And basically what the Equality Act would do is it would make it really difficult for churches to hold to biblical standards. Um, It would penalize churches possibly um, for the stance that we have. So let me give you an example. If the Equality Act were to pass and we were to have an event in our church where people came, we may have to be mandated to have gender-neutral bathrooms where both sexes could go into the bathrooms. We couldn't have men's bathrooms or women's bathrooms. Or I as a pastor would not have the choice to say, I'm not going to perform a same-sex wedding and this building can't be used for same-sex weddings. They may say, well, too bad. You lose your tax exempt status, you're fined. 
So there's some things that are coming down the pike that you need to be aware of in America that could make it very difficult for churches and pastors and, and Christians to stand up for biblical truth. And on the flip side, they're trying to indoctrinate your children early, early, early. Um, I mean, you, you know what's going on with Blue's Clues, right? Anybody here watch Blue's Clues anymore? Okay, Blue, well, okay, Aiden watched Blue's Clues and he's a little, good, I'm glad you're not watching Blue's Clues, but Blue's Clues now has got like gay pride stuff and they've got um, the, the drag queen story hour and they're bringing all this stuff into children's cartoons. Um, and so you're starting to see a push into all areas of entertainment, into the school system. Um, don't think for a moment be careful here. <clears throat> Don't think for a moment, just because we're out here in northeastern Colorado, in rural red state part of Colorado, that stuff like this won't come into our public schools. Now, here's what's, here's what's happening. For the most part now, this, this generation of teachers in our area um, are, for the most part, you know, kind of salt-of-the-earth, conservative-type people. But as, the younger, as, as teachers retire, who, who becomes the new teachers? Younger teachers. And where do they usually come from? They come from this worldview. And so um, let me just put a plug in for this Saturday. This Saturday we're having a parenting conference on how to, how to be a parent it's a three-hour training that we're going to talk about how you as parents need to be the primary disciples of your children and, and that you can't abdicate that off to anybody else. You're the primary responsibility to, to raise your children. Um, and so there's just a lot of confusion in that. All right, so let's recap, and then we'll, we'll, we'll ask some questions. So let's just recap the three things that we've seen. That we've, we've asked three questions tonight. And let's just recap the three answers to these questions based upon this passage of Scripture. So um, first, we ask the question, what does it mean, let us make man in our image? So here's the first thing. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, planned our existence through a special act of creation on the sixth day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God planned sovereignly our creation, our special creation. And number two, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Second, humans are specially created in the image of God, which means that we are morally and spiritually dependent and accountable to God. We exist to display His glory and worship Him alone. We are to bow under His kingship and rest, represent Him to a watching world. <clears throat> and then the third thing, I'm going to lose my voice here in a minute. I don't know why. <coughs> Excuse me. God specifically created a biological and sexual distinction between male and female. Therefore, any sexual or romantic thought, desire, expression, or explicit action that is not between one man and one woman in a covenant marriage under the Lordship of Christ is sin. I don't know how more plain we can say that. So, when you read Genesis 1, which we've done the past two weeks, last week and this week, 
we come to grips with that God is sovereign. God created with the divine purpose. God ordained how the world should be. And, and let's just remember this. It is God's world, not ours. And if it's God's world, who makes the rules of how the world operates? God. And when you go against God's rules, all it's going to bring you is misery. You're not going to flourish. You're not going to be joyful. You are not going to live for the purpose that God has called you when you go against his rules. So any attempt to change what God has ordained or God has created is, is rebellion. And sadly, what we'll see next week, well, actually in two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about um, Adam and Eve and marriage. And then the next week, we'll talk about the fall. Um, so that comes in a couple weeks. So that is Genesis chapter 1. We have any questions then for the next 10 or 12 minutes or so? I got done faster than I thought. Any questions online, Tarina? Come on now. Okay. I'm going to repeat your question just for the. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so where's the line between temptation and attraction? Well, let's turn to James chapter 1. James gives us a little order here. So let's go to verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. Everybody there? You there, Andrew? Since I'm asking your question? Okay. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt anyone with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire... Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Okay, so it starts with the desire. Okay? Now, you can be tempted and still not sin if you don't give in to the desire. It's when you give in to the desire or you give in to the action that you've sinned. Okay? So... We need to be really careful because what we're hearing a lot in our world today, even among Christians, is it's not, really, it's not a sin unless you act out on it. But Jesus says, and, and we talked about this, I think, the other night, the passage you read in Bible study the other night, that even if you look at a woman with lust, you've still committed adultery in your heart. So you don't have to commit the outward action to still have committed the sin. So sometimes temptation just pops in front of you when you least expect it. And at that moment, you run. But for the most part, temptation is something that you need to avoid because you know where you're going to go to get tempted. In other words, don't put yourself in places where you're going to be tempted. If you know you're going to be tempted, if you know certain activities or certain places or certain things are going to tempt you, avoid those because you're going to be lured into it. That's just wisdom. Now, 
you know, for example, I'll give you a dumb example. Sometimes you're at Walmart in the summertime in Sterling, and you're walking down the produce aisle, and you turn around, and you see a girl that's like, what in the world are you wearing? <laughs> and you're like, whoa, that, I didn't expect to see that out in public. Okay, so that's like a temptation you weren't looking for. You're like, okay, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go to the frozen food aisle. You should probably see that, Julie, because you work over there. <laughs> what, are these, what are these young girls <laughs> wearing? <laughs> like they came from the reservoir and forgot to take, forgot to put. So, I mean, those are things like they just pop, like you're at Walmart, and something pops up at you. That's different than saying, okay, I'm going to purposely do this, or I'm going to put myself in this, or I, I know that I'm weak in this area, but I'm going to get up to the edge as close as I can because I'm really, really strong, and you know that you're not, and you're going you're gonna to get lured in. Does that, does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, my dad tells a story about a man that was a businessman that traveled a lot, and he... Um, was always going to different hotels and traveled, and so um, he got into an elevator, and this woman got into the elevator, and she was dressed real provocatively, and she was kind of making eye contact with him, and she basically propositioned him in the elevator. Well, he was, you know, his floor, I think, was like 34 or whatever, and they were on the first floor, and so, like, he hit the buttons, and <laughs> so he got out on the next floor and got away as fast as he could. Um, that was his way of fleeing, was I don't care what floor I'm on, and he took the stairs all the way up to his next, you know, to wherever he was, because he got out of the elevator as fast as he could. And that's something where you weren't expecting it, then you have to make a decision in that moment, you know, what you're going to do. Other questions? Glenn? Yes? For justice, yeah. Genesis 9, 6, yeah. It's almost in that Old Testament context, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. Not that you take vigilante justice, but that if, if you take a human life, you need to face the consequences of the law and be punished for taking that life. Whether that is the death penalty under ancient Israel, or now we have a system of, of laws that determine you know, whether it's involuntary manslaughter or whatever. But the general principle is if you take a life, justice demands that, you know, you, you pay the penalty with your life. Now, this is Old Testament economy. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. And the reason why is because you're created in the image of God. It's not just random. It's because you're created in the image of God. That it's, that's why murder is so wicked is because you're taking a life of someone who's created in the image of God. That's why abortion is so bad, because you're taking the life of a preborn person who's created in the image of God. So. Yes, Mark. What, what identity are you, what, what specifically are you talking like? So how do you, okay, so how do you lovingly address someone who has 
found that identity. Okay. Okay, so let me ask, okay, so the question is, how do you lovingly engage a person who identifies as a, okay, so are they claiming to be a Christian, but yet adopting that identity? Because I think you, I think you would tr- treat someone who's a non-Christian differently than you would treat a Christian, because a non-Christian does not claim to be a Christian, they're not regenerate, they're not born again, whereas a Christian claims to have experienced that and believes the Bible, but yet is not wanting to change. Is that kind of the question? Yeah, so how do you lovingly, how do you speak the truth in love? Okay, well, number one, you've got to be honest with what the Bible says. Regardless of what, regardless of whether you're going to hurt a person's feelings, you have to speak the truth in love. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about it. You can be very kind and say, what you're doing is wrong, and it's not my opinion it's wrong. It's wrong because it's what the Bible says. And you say you accept the Bible, you say you're a Christian. Um, what I've often done with a person that's, that's that, I've asked two questions. I've asked the first question is, in your heart of hearts, can you truly say you're obeying God? And the second question I ask is, in your heart of hearts, can you truly say that you're glorifying God? And if they answer yes to both those questions, then for me there's like a, there's a conscience searing, there's a blindness, there's a darkness there where they don't want to face that. Um, but what I'm trying to get to is the root level of like, ultimately your identity is to glorify God, to live for God, and you want them to kind of get back to that base. And so regardless of whether they're a non-Christian or regardless of whether they're a Christian, if they're living in sin, no matter what sin it is, what's the most important thing for them? Is it for them to change their sin or is it for them to have a relationship with Christ? is to have a relationship with Christ. And part of that involves repentance. And so I would, I would kind of talk about, like, what is your view of repentance? How does this glorify God? How does this line up with what you believe about the Bible? And get them to start thinking about that. Because it, it's difficult, Mark, because you're dealing with deep, deep identity issues of people that are just struggling with those deep, deep, especially when it's like, sexual issues you're dealing with people that are like deeply and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of prayer it's not like a quick fix you don't want to come in guns blazing um and you know maybe there's a time and a place for rebuking somebody but i think you need to know who the person is and i think you need to speak the truth in love and i think that's the fine line how do you speak the truth but do it with love I think there's two extremes. We either want to speak the truth and be jerks with no love, or we want to be lovey-dovey and never speak the truth. And it's like, how do you bring those two together and, and do what the Bible says? I think that's where a lot of Christians have a hard time. And I think nowadays it's more on this side of the love side as opposed to the truth side. Does that answer your question at all? Or? Okay. I thought I saw another hand over here. All right, this was a controversial one tonight, wasn't it? All right, so I'm going to pray, and then um, 
some of you I'm going to assign to go to be listeners with the kids. Um, I've got a list here. We're going to have kind of a rotation, so um, I've already assigned you tonight, so I will let you know after we pray where you're going, and just go in there and tell the team. Well, we'll pray, and I'll give instructions after we're offline. There's no questions online, Trina? All right, maybe people are doing other things out there. I'm kind of glad. Maybe they didn't. Yeah, so all right. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know it's been some difficult waters that we've walked through, but Lord, we need to come to face-to-face with what your Bible says and not be ashamed of your truth. To know, to know, Lord, that uh, you are the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That you are our great and mighty God. You've created us in your image to glorify you, to worship you, to, to have sanctity of human life. And, and, Lord, you've also created us male and female, distinctly different. And, Lord, as we try to navigate these difficult times that we live in, Lord, I pray for parents and grandparents that you give them wisdom on how to raise their children and talk about these issues. And, Lord, um, as these as these parents have young children that are growing up in this world, Lord, I pray you just give them wisdom, give them courage. Lord, help them just to know how to teach biblical truth. Lord, help us to be a church that can help parents do that. Help us to be a church that stands on the truth, Lord. Help us to be loving in everything that we do. Um, Lord, help us to speak the truth in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.